Um, have you ever, let me ask you this, when was the last time that you looked for assurance? Like when was the last time that you looked for assurance? It may, it may have been asking somebody, hey, are you sure? You know, somebody tells you something or they give you an opinion or, and you're like, are you sure about that? You know, or, um, or maybe uh, it was, you know, even yourself, you're like, okay, I'm going to make this decision. You kind of ask yourself like, hey, are you sure about that? Like, you know, am I sure, you know, of that? So assurance uh, can be defined in this way. And so assurance really, just kind of dictionary definitions, we're all on the same page, is a confidence or certainty about something. To confidence or certainty about something. And I think as people, we are drawn to want and desire assurance. We're drawn to want and desire uh, to be assured, to have certainty, to have confidence in things in our life. And I think we see this in all kinds of different ways. I think we see this in marriage and relationships that we want to know that our spouse or, or the people that we're friends with, we, we want to know that they care about it. We want us to know that we're loved. We want to know that we are accepted by them. And so we look for that assurance in different ways. You can see it in, uh, if you have kids, is you're, you know, maybe you're walking along and you get to a crowded part in the store or something, your kid reaches out and grabs your hand. Right? They're, they're wanting just that assurance that, hey, you're there, you're walking with me, you know, you're doing all that kind of stuff. It could be with your appearance. So I, I know this morning I went to my wife and I said, like, is it okay? Like, everything match? Everything good? And she was like, yeah, you're, you're good to go. I was like, okay. Uh, and then because I'm a little insecure and it's preaching in front of all these people, I'm like, hey, go back a few minutes later. Like, are we sure? Like, we're, we're sure. Like, we're good, you know? Um, before you laugh at me, some of you guys need to make sure next Sunday. I'm just saying. Um, I'm just playing. You know, but it, it can be all, all, all those kind of things. You know, um, before we make a decision, uh, you know, we, we want to be assured as best we can about, you know, maybe the purchase we're having. So you can go on and look at Google reviews. You can read reviews and, and ratings on Amazon. You know, there's all these different ways that, that we look, and, and, and maybe we're not thinking this is what we're doing, but we're, we're honestly looking for assurance. We're wanting confidence and we're wanting certainty in whatever that thing is before us. And so as I was reading this and studying for this week, you know, I just kind of came back to the question of, you know, can we have assurance when it comes to God? Like, can we have assurance when it comes to God? Can we really have a certainty and a confidence that he loves us with an everlasting love? Can we really have a confidence and an assurance that we have been saved and our eternity has been secured, if that's a decision you've made in your life, to, to accept and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior? Can we really know that we're saved? You know, maybe can we really, do we really know that if we commit to living the ways of Jesus in this world, that at the end of the day, it really is going to be worth it? Can we really know? Are we really sure? As I was studying, I came across a, a quote that really defined not just assurance, but defined this idea of like Christian assurance. Can Christians really be sure? And, and, and if so, what does that look like and what does that mean? And, uh, and there were a couple that, that came, came out. One is by a man named D.A. Carson. He said, a Christian believer's confidence that he or she is in right standing with, is, is, that he or she is in right standing with God. And this will issue an ultimate salvation. So he says that a Christian believer's confidence is, yes, I'm right with God 
And one day it will lead to my ultimate salvation, that ultimate renewal, that glorification, eternity with God forever. Regalia says this, that assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ of their present approval and their future acceptance by the Father. It's this confidence and assurance that, 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 that I'm loved and approved and embraced by God, accepted by God, both now and forever. And so the question is, is that something we can really have? Is that something we can really find? Is that something we should pursue? Well, as we continue this study in Romans, I believe Paul says yes to all of those questions. And in Romans chapter eight, and at the end of this, he, he is summarizing kind of a, an argument or a, um, a teaching that he's been really leading and, and, and pouring into over the past three chapters in, in chapters five through eight, where he's been building a case for what God has done, all the things that God has done through Jesus. And then he comes to a point where he's saying, listen, not only can we believe these things, but we can be assured of these things, that we can have a confidence and a certainty in these things. If you have a Bible, like I said, turn to Romans chapter 8. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read uh, verses 31 through 39, which will be our, our main text for today. And uh, here at Bay Area, when we read our main text, uh, at the end of that, we just say the phrase out loud together, the very words to distinguish God's word from my own. Here's what Paul writes. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have a seat. So Paul comes, bless you, Paul comes to, to verse 31. And he asks a question in kind of summarizing what he's been writing over the past chapters. Now we know that when Paul originally wrote a letter, he didn't write it in chapter and verse. He just wrote the letter. So in this last section that we have is chapter five through eight, Paul comes to this point of summarizing that, and he asks this question. Look at verse 8, 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? He says, okay, well, all right, so based on all that, what do we do? What do we say? What now? How do we respond? And he says, well, how do we respond to these things? Well, what are these things? These things are all the things that he's been writing all the things he's declared, all the recounting of who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ. Paul says, okay, what do we do with all that? How do we respond to all of that? Where does that leave us? Where does it land on us? 
And then he moves into this theme that, that I believe points us to this idea of assurance. That based on all of these things, Paul is saying we can be certain of God's love and we can be certain of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the big idea. Listen, if, you know, if you're like, okay, Zach, I'm hanging with you, especially if you're one of our Collide students and you're like, listen, it was like a late, late night. So if you get nothing else, here's the bottom line. That we can be sure of God's everlasting love and our salvation in Jesus Christ. Not just we can hope, we can maybe, we can be sure. So Paul does this in kind of answering his own question. He says, okay, so what now? What do we do? Well, instead of just saying that statement like I did, like, well, we can be sure of this. He asks four kind of rhetorical questions because it's like he wants us to think through this. Not just to say, okay, we can know, we can be confident, we can be assured of God's love, of our salvation in Christ through faith and by his grace. He's saying, listen, we, we want you to think through this. So he asks four rhetorical questions that I think point us to this idea of assurance. So in the time we have left today, I want to walk through these four questions. I want to look at what Paul says and how he answers those, why he feels this way, and then at the end of the day, kind of what that means for us. All right, so if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the first question. Paul asks, who can be against us? So what do we say to all this stuff? What do we know? He goes on to say, okay, well, who can be against us? Look at verse 31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So this is like the bumper sticker verse that you probably have, or you have the framed print from Hobby Lobby. You know, it's like, you know, we've got this down, but do we understand what he's really saying? He's saying, if God is for us, he's not asking the question, he's basing that question on the assumption that God is for us, that God is for us. He is for our salvation. He is for our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus. He is for giving us good gifts and blessing. He is for us. Well, so how do we know he's for us? So let's imagine, you know, you're dropping in on Paul's letter and they're reading this in the church in Rome and you're like, okay, well, but how, how do I know? Like I haven't read chapters five through eight. Well, Paul kind of recaps it. Look at verse 32. He gives us two reasons why we can know that God is for us. The first one is this. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He said, okay, so we know that God loves us because God gave us Jesus. Because God gave us Jesus. God loves us, and we know he loves us. We know he's for us because he gave us the very best he could give us. He gave us his one and only son. I love the way Eugene Peterson in the Message Bible kind of paraphrases this in this passage. He says it this way, that if God did not hesitate, so he said, listen, God didn't even, didn't even stall. It wasn't even a consideration not to do this. He loves you and is for you enough that he didn't even hesitate to what? To put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his son. We know that God is for us because God gave us Jesus. He gave us the very, very best he could. Well, why did he do that? 
Well, John writes in John 3, 16, he did it because he loves us. Look at that verse. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So God gave Jesus. That's how we know he's for us. He gave us his very best. But Paul also says we know that he's for us because not only did he give us Jesus, look back at verse 32. He says, he, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Not only do we know God is for us because he gave us Jesus, we also know God is for us because he continues to graciously give us all things. Now, if you're reading and you're thinking, you should ask the question, or maybe like, okay, well, if I'm supposed to have all things, why don't I have all things? Right? I mean, I'm just taking Paul at his word. I'm not, this isn't like a deep dive in theology. He just said, he'll graciously give you all things. And this can create a tension for us. But there's a difference, as you probably know and understand, between what we need and what we desire. There's a difference in what we need and what we desire. So God is graciously giving us all things according to his knowledge and his character. See, the tension comes when God doesn't give us what we want, when we want it, and how we wanted it. But that happens in life. And it's even harder sometimes when God gives us what we didn't want, when we didn't want it, the way we didn't want to get it. But the reality is this, if God gave us Jesus, then why would he give us something that would not be for us? Just because we don't understand or agree or we maybe think that it's not what we should have, how we should have it and when we should have it. See, we can be confident in God's love because not only did he give us Jesus, but he also gives us what we need. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So listen, you're imperfect as a dad. You're imperfect as a person. And you strive to give your kids the best thing you can give them. And if you're not even perfect and you try to do that, how much more can God do that? So we can have confidence in God because he gave us the very best in Jesus and continues to give us today what we need, what he knows is best for us, what he knows will help us ultimately become more like his son Jesus and lead us in a life of righteousness. And so because of that, Paul says, okay, well, then who can be against us? And the answer really implied is this is nobody, that no one. If God is for us, if God is working his plans, if he's doing his thing, though we have people who want to come and oppose us, though we have people who want to come against us, the reality is, is they can't overcome the God who's already given us everything. So we can be confident in God's love and our salvation because if God is for us, then who can be against us? Second question Paul asks is this, who will bring charges against us? Look at verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, who are God's elect? Well, God's elect are those that are chosen and forgiven by God by his grace through their faith. 
It's the people of God. It's true, authentic Christians. And so he says, okay, well, who can bring charges against his people? So he, he used this idea of like charges. He goes to this legal kind of metaphor and definition. So when somebody brings a legal charge against you, what they're saying is this, is they're accusing you of some sort of wrongdoing. They're attacking your character, your action, or something you've done, and they're saying that that is not appropriate, that is not right, that is wrong, and so they're bringing charges against you. Police can file charges, we can file legal charges on on other people, the district attorney can do that. So all these things are basically, you know, he's saying, listen, who can bring charges against you? Who can bring things against you and accusations against you that would have any validity in God's court of law? And again, the implication is no one. Well, who would try to bring charges against us then? Well, if we read scripture, we see this, that that the enemy, Satan, the accuser, would wanna bring charges against you and me as followers of Jesus. We also see that sometimes other people bring accusation against us, not, you know, I'm not talking about because we, you know, swipe their pen at work. I'm talking about like, because they, you know, they're saying, listen, there's no way you can be loved by God. There's no way you can be a Christian because look at you. But sometimes we even bring accusations against ourselves. Well, what, what, what are the charges against us? That our salvation is not genuine. That we can't be loved by God because we're too broken and we're too messed up. That, yeah, God may have loved you, but you, you've gone way too far. You can never be made right again. Paul says, okay, well, who can bring charges like that against you? Well, we know people can bring the charges. But what he's saying is this, who can bring charges against you that declare you guilty when God has declared you innocent? See, because the way the legal system works in my little understanding is people bring charges, those charges are go to court, and then a judge decides guilt or innocence, not the one making the accusation. And so Paul says this, listen, who can bring charges against us that really matter or mean anything? He goes on to say, look at verse 33, because it is God who justifies It's God who justifies. He basically is saying this. Listen, nobody can bring charges against you that are gonna hold any weight in the presence and courtroom of God because God is the ultimate judge and in Christ, through our faith in him, God has already declared you not guilty. He's already declared you innocent. He's already declared you as forgiven. He's already declared you as his son or his daughter. So what anybody else would have to say in God's courtroom doesn't hold anything because God is the judge and God is the one who's declared us who we are. So who can bring charges against you that are gonna nullify what God has said about you? Nobody, not even ourselves. Not even those voices of doubt, those voices of condemnation that we bring against ourselves. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. To justify means to make right. God is the one who's made us right with him. And so nobody else can change that. Nobody else can speak to that. Here's the third question. Not only who will bring charges against us, but then who will condemn us? 
So it's a similar question, but it kind of has more of a forward-thinking idea. So not not only who will bring charges against you, but then from that, like who's going to condemn you? Who's going to bring punishment? Who's going to declare you as guilty, declare you as unrighteous? And he goes on to say, as we just talked about, really nobody. Verse 34, he says, okay, well, who's who's to condemn? And again, we see the implied answer is nobody. Well, how come? Because you can't condemn somebody who's been declared not guilty. You can't condemn somebody who's been made right before the judge. Paul even said in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is now now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only can you not be accused in God's courtroom of not being his, you also are not facing consequences for it because the consequence has already been paid that declared you innocent. See, see here, here's the thing that I think sometimes we, we miss is that our sin, our rebellion against God, our doing what God tells us not to do, God can't just look at that and say, I'm not gonna deal with that because he is just, he is righteous. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, that what we earn because of sin is death, is separation from God for all eternity. But instead of saying, listen, you're gonna pay the penalty for that, the Bible tells us that he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life yet die a sacrificial death on a cross, taking on all of our sin and the condemnation and punishment that comes with it so that we, by his grace, through faith in him, will face no condemnation. So who can condemn us? Nobody. Because Jesus has already paid the price for our sin. Look at 1 Peter 2, 24 on the screen. It says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By what Jesus did on the cross, we now face no condemnation. So who can accuse us? Who can bring charges against us that are gonna override what God has said about us? Nobody. Who's gonna condemn us? No one, because we have already had our debt paid through Jesus Christ. Well, how, how do we know that? Paul goes on to talk about it. He, defies, he says it this way in verse 34. He says, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. He said, listen, it's never gonna change because Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is intervening. He is, he is stepping between us and God. And he's saying, listen, they no longer are accused. They are no longer condemned because I have taken their place. And it says, he's standing there to this day. So we have been accepted, we will be accepted, and will always be accepted by God because our sin has been paid for. So can we have confidence in God's love? Yes. Can we have confidence in the assurance of our faith in Jesus? Yes. Why? Because he is interceding for us. 
It takes me back to the story in John chapter eight of the woman caught in adultery. So quickly, if you, know, if you don't know the story, some, there were some religious leaders in Jesus' day who weren't for Jesus. And they were always trying to trip him up and, and get him in trouble and make him say something that was wrong and so they could bring charges against him and kill him, which they actually did finally kill him, but they just made up stuff about him because they couldn't find anything true about his wrongdoing. So they, they catch a woman in adultery and they bring her before Jesus to say, listen, this woman's caught in adultery. The Old Testament says we should stone her. What do you say? They say her penalty should be death. Now we know they're not like having true motives because two things. One, it's kind of convenient they caught the woman in adultery. It's like they were tipped off. And two, there's, there's no guy. So if they're really concerned about adultery, you think they'd be concerned about both parties. But they bring her to Jesus. They say that she should be stoned. She should be executed. It says Jesus knelt down in the sand and began to kind of like draw in the sand. Like to this day, like people speculate, nobody knows what Jesus drew. But it was enough of what he drew and the words that he shared that caused the crowd to leave. He said to them, listen, okay, you who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And it says that they slowly dropped their stones and they left. So now you have just Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, who's probably terrified, who is completely wrecked. And it says that Jesus said this to her. Look at John 8, 10 to 11 on the screen. It says, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All those who were accusing her, all those that were there to condemn her, were silenced and gone. Why? Because Jesus interceded for her. It's a picture of what he does for us. So when Paul says, who can bring charges against you? He said, no one can bring charges against you that override what God has done for you. Who can condemn you? There's no one to condemn you. Why? Because Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin. So we can have confidence and assurance in that. Here's the fourth question that Paul asks. Not only does he say who can be against us, who can bring charges against us, who will condemn us, he says, who shall separate us? Look at verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives two different lists in in the answer. Here's the first one. Verse 35 continues, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, listen, any of these potential and actual threats that are coming, can any of this separate us from the love of God? And then he says, he quotes in verse 36, a psalm from Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So it's like, hey, why, is he, that, why is he quoting that? Like, what does that have to do with this question? Well, because he wants to make, he's making a point here. Because sometimes we face hardship and we face difficulty because we do things that are not wise. 
We make mistakes, and sometimes those mistakes come with, with earthly consequence. So I blow through a red light, I speed, the police officer pulls me over, I'm probably getting a ticket. That has nothing to do with the fact that I've been forgiven eternally by Jesus. Like that's still true, I still pay a fine. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about things that would come against us that are kind of because of our missteps. He's, he's talking about things that come against us specifically because of our faithfulness to him. Because see, in Psalm 44, the psalmist is writing and he's saying, basically, listen, that, that we are being oppressed, we're being persecuted, people are coming against us, and they're coming against us not because they were disobedient to God, they had done something wrong, they're coming against them because of their faithfulness to God. And so Paul's saying, listen, that yes, while Jesus loves you, while Jesus works through things, while you can still make mistakes, that doesn't change anything. Even when you're doing the right thing, some things may come at you that may get you to question whether or not those things are so bad that they separate you from the love of God. And he comes back and says, listen, that those things cannot separate you from the love of God. There's two wrong ways we think about hardship. Number one is there are some people that think that if something bad happens to somebody, especially a follower of Jesus, it's because they sinned and God's mad at them. Listen, bad things happen because we live in a broken world with broken people. Yes, sometimes we make mistakes and we suffer consequences. But there are some times where we've done absolutely nothing wrong. And as followers of Jesus, we still face hardship. It doesn't mean that we've messed up. The other wrong way of thinking about that is, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I will never face hardship. When in fact, Paul alludes to this, that no, chances are you will face hardship if you choose to be faithful to Jesus. It's gonna cost you something at some point. But Paul says that in all of these things, look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So in all these things, in all the persecution, all the famine, all the nakedness, all that stuff that could come to us, even because we're being faithful to him, and especially because we're being faithful to him, he says, no, we are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. We're not like barely winning the game. We're blowing out the opponent. That's how victorious we are. He says we are more than conquerors. Well, well, how does Paul know this? Because Paul experienced exactly the things he's talking about. We don't have time to go into it, but, if, but maybe this afternoon, look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Paul writes and gives like a recap of everything that he's been through. The times he was beaten because of his faith in Jesus. The time he was shipwrecked and stranded because he was trying to get the gospel to a certain place. And he goes through all of these things and then comes to verse 38 in Romans chapter eight. He says, who can separate us? No one, here's why. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
He says, despite all this stuff I've been through, here's what I'm sure of. Here's what I'm assured of. Here's the assurance that I have. That nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And here's the ironic thing. It's actually through facing the difficulty that he's become sure of that. See, some of, the, some of the reason why we go through difficulty and suffering in this broken world is so God can show how true his promises really are. And like, we don't like that. That's not framed at Hobby Lobby, right? But it's true. He knew that the love of God did not separate him from the struggles, but he also knew that those struggles could not separate him from the love of God. So can we find a place and live in a place of assurance, of certainty, of confidence in who God is, his everlasting love for us, the the, the genuineness and the the certainty of, of the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Can we find assurance in those things? Paul would say yes. He would say because nobody can come against us because God is for us. So nobody can bring accusation against us and declare us guilty because God has already declared us innocent. He's declared us not guilty. No one can condemn us because Jesus already paid the penalty of sin. And nothing, 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 nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I wonder, do you have that assurance today? And not like, Yes, it's on my wall in the office. Like, do you have that assurance? Do you live with that assurance? Do you lean into that assurance? I love what Tim Keller says, and we'll conclude with this. And then like two questions for you. He said, the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unmistakably his heart is set on us. So we can have assurance because it's not about us. If it was based on us or about us, guess what? We're probably gonna mess it up. But it's not about us. So we can have assurance. So do you have assurance that God loves you today? That his love is with an everlasting love? Do you believe, students, do you believe that when the Bible says God loves you unconditionally, he's declared you as righteous if you put your faith in Jesus? that no matter what people say about you, that God says that you are loved, that you are wanted, that you are his. Do you have that assurance today? Do you have the assurance that because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you've been saved, your sin's been forgiven, the penalty's been paid, and you have been granted eternal life through his grace and by your faith? If not, today is a day you can find assurance. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in this moment grateful for the assurance that you provide, the confidence that we have in who you are, the confidence we have in your love for us, and the confidence, God, we can have in the promise of salvation. And so, God, as we come to this moment of just response and decision, 
God, I pray that, that if we are struggling, God, in, the, in that area of your love, that, God, today that we would find, God, that we would find a, a new assurance of your love for us. That, God, in these moments, you would maybe through your spirit speak truth into our life so we could see, God, who we are to you. And, God, if, if there are those in this room who have never put their faith and their trust in Jesus, who have believed that he is the Son of God, acknowledge that they need forgiveness because of their sin, and trust Jesus to bring that forgiveness because of his life, death, and his resurrection. I pray today, God, in this moment, they would voice a really simple prayer. Something maybe like, Jesus, I believe who you are. I acknowledge my sin and my need for you. And today, I commit my life to you. Forgive me and be my Savior. And Lord, and that today, God, they would step into assurance. But God, whatever we need just in this time, help us to respond to you. It's in Jesus' name.